Well, a, a warm good morning to all of you. It is a joy to be with you today. I want to extend a particularly uh, passionate welcome to those of you who are joining us via live stream today and in all of the other venues of Christ Church. It is marvelous to be huddled together in the midst of this season and to be drawing upon the grace of the God that flows from above in various forms, as we've seen uh, through these last hours. If you are just joining us today, we are starting or have been starting a new series that we are entitling Shift. And the focus of this particular series, through the lens of the parables of Jesus, is to look at some of the major life shifts that Christ calls us to make as he seeks to lead us more fully into life abundant and to the life of influence that he longs for us to have in the world. I talked last week about the first of those major shifts, the move from what I called dabbling to discipleship. And uh, that particular shift is a bit like the move that a race car driver uh, makes out of neutral into first gear at the start of the journey. Uh, you know you're going nowhere fast as long as you're in neutral. As long as you essentially have a fairly neutral attitude toward Jesus, you can't progress on the life of faith. You can't just sort of admire him from a distance. The key move at the beginning is one into a deeper kind of devotion and commitment uh, to him. If I can catch a vision for the amazing life that Jesus has and, and develop the intention to try and cultivate that kind of life in myself and then take on the means that God provides for us to cooperate with the work of his Holy Spirit, to actually grow that sort of life in us, then we can be amazed sometimes at the transformation of character and attitude and capacity for influence and relationships in our families and workplace and the wider world. And that is God's passion for us, not just to give us a slightly fine-tuned life, but a truly transformed life, a life much like Jesus' own life. Uh, that begins with the first shift. Am I going to simply be a dabbler or am I actually serious about pursuing the way of discipleship? How have you answered that question? Uh, what is the evidence that you have answered that question the way you have uh, in your own journey? Assuming that for most of us there is that shift in place, then we're ready to also shift into second gear. And I want to talk about the second gear part today with you, if I may. I want to invite you to think about uh, that shift as it is described for us in some of the most famous parables that Jesus ever told. Uh, we find the, the uh, great story uh, picked up in Luke chapter 15. You may find it helpful to open in your Bibles uh, to that particular passage. Uh, because in this whole stretch, this entire chapter, Jesus lays out a picture of what that shift is all about. Listen to the word of God. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus, ostensibly hearing and sensing the attitude and orientation of those critics, then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. 
doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, said Jesus, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus then goes on and tells maybe his most famous story, the parable of the prodigal son, and I'll come back to that in just a moment. I want to invite you to notice, as I've suggested to you on one occasion before, that there are four common elements that tie all of these stories together. Four crucial plot elements that are worth noting for ourselves. Uh, the first of those elements is suggested by the process in which we hear of a loss. The opening story tells about a man who owns a hundred sheep. The second is about a woman who had ten silver coins. The third tale is about a father who had two sons. And the common element in each one of these storylines and through that is that through no apparent fault of the owner himself, one of these those possessions, at least one, has gone missing. That's the first idea. There's something that's gone missing. A sheep wanders off, probably out of stupidity if you know sheep. Uh, a coin rolls away, probably the result of blind gravity. You know how things just fall out of your pocket and between the cushions of the sofa or or you lose it in some other way, and then a son splits from the family, and we know in that case, it's clearly out of selfish depravity. These three stories display the brainless choices, think of the sheep, the blind circumstances, think of the coin rolling away, and the, well, the bad choices and poor character of, of people. Think of the the son that demands the father's inheritance. These three things, brainless choices, blind circumstances, poor character, account for a lot of the fabric of life. They describe a lot of what goes wrong in families, in individual lives, in communities, and in indeed our culture. So the first element I want you to think about is this idea that in the midst of life today, sometimes people and things go missing. The second common element in the stories is the response of those who would have been listening to Jesus. Christ doesn't actually supply the soundtrack for this, but it's not hard to fill in. The conventional response to each and every one of those losses would have been, actually, who cares? That's the irony of the story. Jesus pretends, or at least suggests in the story, that this is really worth caring about. But the actual natural response of most people in these circumstances would have been, who really cares? 
Who really cares about that stupid sheep? He's only one out of 99. Who cares if he becomes a wolf bait? Uh, Next spring we'll have more sheep. It'll be okay. To the woman, they would probably say, don't bother with that missing coin. It'll probably turn up at some point. Besides, you already have nine other coins, silver coins. You're rich. Relax. Or in the third story, to the father, they would shout, please, let let the kid starve. He has proven what a worthless kid he is by demanding this inheritance. He would rather have you dead. He would rather have you dead. Let him go. And if he ever comes back, have him stoned to death for what he's done. And that would have been condoned by Jewish law under the circumstances. Who cares? Who cares? It is, however, the third element of each story on which the whole teaching, the whole shift that we're going to get at today, actually turns. Strangely, it seems, the main character in the stories, each of the stories, actually cares a lot, truly cares a great deal. While Jesus doesn't give us all of the detail on this, we get this picture of this shepherd leaving the other 99 sheep in the open country, and the emphasis there is it's open country, and he ventures off now into what we must assume is not open country. You you get a sense that he's going through the thickets now. He's working his way through the brambles and the briars and he's venturing into the tangled uh, environments. He's searching through the ravines until he locates that one missing lamb. In the second story, we imagine the woman lighting a lamp. It's dark. It's not the time of day you'd actually go looking for things, but she lights a lamp in her house and she grabs the broom and and she then goes cheek down amidst the dust bunnies and she's under the couch and under the bed and the tables and, and she's stretching herself out to find that one lost coin. And then in the third story, we, we picture the, the father spying his boy coming up over the hill. He sees him while he's a long way off, which means what? He's been looking for him. Ever since he left, he's kept his eyes on the horizon, hoping this this kid of all kids would come home. And we're told that while he was still a long way off, the father sees the boy and he somehow forgets his past injury and he hikes up his skirts, which would be an act of incredible indignity in that ancient culture for a dad to ever do this. He hikes up his skirt and goes running out to meet his criminally errant son. We read the stories of Jesus with such sealed and unwandering eyes sometimes. We, they seem just so familiar to us. We lose a sense of how radical they are. How contrary to human nature is the way that Jesus is describing And then the fourth element of each story is that as a result of finding that which was lost, a great celebration ensues. The shepherd calls his friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. 
The woman in the second story gathers all her associates and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. The father in the last tale cries to his servants, Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. In every single one of these storylines, a celebration is held that seems utterly out of proportion to the apparent value of the item. Do you get this? In other words, we would never do this in this world. But Jesus says, this is the way heaven works. This is how God feels. About things and people we don't particularly value. And making the shift from the way we typically think and feel and act to the way that God feels and thinks and acts is one of the most important movements towards the kind of maturity that God wants for those who choose to be His disciples. Jesus, of course, anticipates how hard it is to make this shift. Because he goes on to tell a sequel story. A sequel to the third story. It's the story you are familiar with in which we learn of the reaction of the elder son in the father's household to the arrival of the younger son and to the father's response to the younger son. Uh, all these years, he says to his father, I, I have been slaving for you, and, and I never disobeyed your orders, and yet you never gave me even a young goat. So I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? What Jesus is trying to tell us here is that we should expect that, that grace would not make much sense from the vantage point of religion. This is the larger lesson here. Religion says that it is the people who appear to do the right things who matter most to God. It's the ones who stay in the sheepfold. It's the ones who remain in the purse. It's the ones who don't stray away from home who are the valuable ones, probably the only valuable ones or really valuable ones. It's the people who, who, who attend church, who become pastors, whose, whose rule-keeping seems sterling, who, who don't upset the order, who don't let things get messy. These are the people that ought to be the focus of the Father, the Heavenly Father. These, these are the good ones. This is why the Pharisees were appalled at Jesus. Jesus comes ostensibly representing heaven. They're, but they're appalled that Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them communes with them. Why? 
would this holy man lavish such attention on these lost people? This, however, only reminds us that lostness takes many forms. Let me be clear, the younger brother is lost. The younger brother has issues. He needs transformation. But the fact that the elder brother, pay attention to the details of the story here, the fact that the elder brother sees himself as what for the father? Slaving for the father. Suggests that he too does not really have a loving relationship with dad. He doesn't see himself as serving, joyfully serving his father. He's slaving for him. He's working out of a sense of obligation and duty, not an a sense of love. That he resents not being given even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. That that is the focus. That is his kind of defining sense of the reality of his life. Suggests that he, he may not have valued all that much the opportunity to eat at the table with his father every single day. Think about it. And that he refers to the one who comes home as this son of yours instead of as this brother of mine. Says that after living all those years in the father's household, he still doesn't get the father's heart. He still doesn't understand what it means to be family. I think it's a scary thing, this parable. I, honestly, I mean, I find myself deeply convicted by it. How easy it is to, to be in the, f the fold, <laughs> to, to, to be in the purse, to be in the household of the Heavenly Father, and to not develop the Father's heart. Ultimately, as Tim Keller has observed there are at least two big forms of lostness. We can be lost in our selfishness, like the younger brother in the story, or we can be lost in our self-righteousness, like the older brother in the story. But both of those forms of lostness equally break the father's heart. They really break the father's heart. And both of those conditions have this in common, I think, that when we are lost in this way, we are essentially overly focused on securing ourselves. Our main orientation in life is, what's in it for me? How's this working for me? What can I get more for me? Both of the figures in the father's household, those sons, exhibit this characteristic. Now, that securing of ourselves may take the form of wanting more power or position or recognition or comfort or validation or more understanding. Other people ought to be giving me more understanding for myself. And these are legitimate needs on some level. I don't want to just write those things off. All of us, I want those things. You probably want those things. But, but when they become the only things, when they become even the main thing, uh, when we lose our ability to see how many people around us also desperately long and hunger and are trying to find that kind of grace for themselves, then the lostness gets deep. It's okay to invest energy in trying to secure ourselves, 
Don't get me wrong about that. We should. We should. But if we are not every bit as energetically, I think, seeking the good of others, then we haven't made the shift to living with the Father's heart. We're just doing what everyone else does. We haven't made that fundamental shift towards living with the Father's heart. Because the Father is much more, if you think about it, much more about seeking the good of others than he is about securing his own. I mean, really ponder that for just a moment with me. Think of the place the eternal Son of God had in the heavenly realms. Think of the security of that place. Just try and imagine that. He could have happily remained in the eternal armchair, perpetually served by spectacular adoring angels for eons. He could have done this. But this is what gets me. He chose to get up and to go out and to go down into the darkness and the briar patches of this world And at least in one instance, he managed to find in the thicket a stinking sheep, a not very bright sheep named Dan Meyer. Why he would do that when I had basically cursed the idea of him is stunning to me. He laid himself down on a Roman cross suffered humiliation and agonies to pay for my sins and to redeem and reclaim me even though I was just one tiny little coin that in no way could enrich God's vast treasury. Through Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus, God spread out his arms wide to welcome me home when I was still very lost and had so many things that so badly still needed transformation. Yet being part of that family continues to redeem and transform my life for the good. What is your story? How has he touched you? How has His grace found you and made a home for you? And how does Christ's choice to go actively in search of you affect the way you go in search of other lost ones? While I was away this past summer, I I did some wonderful reading, and I think my favorite book of the summer was the award-winning novel, Where the Crawdads Sing, by Delia Owens. I don't know if you've had a chance to read it, put it on your list. I think you'll enjoy it tremendously. The novel tells the story of Kaya Clark, who is a child who gets traumatized by the experience of having her mother and her siblings and then her violent alcoholic father all progressively abandon her when she's still very little. She lives all alone 
in the marshes of coastal North Carolina and has to grow herself up almost all on her own in this environment with little but the wild animals and the birds as her companions. She develops somehow remarkable survival skills and a stunning knowledge of the life of this uh, marshland. And having suffered so very much and having lived so long outside of the bounds of what you and I would call civilization, Kaya grows up a bit weird. Let's be honest, she's a little wacky. She's a little bit strange. And knowing the background, of course, you understand why. The people in the closest town, a place called Barkley Cove, come to, to suspect her. She lives outside of the prim and proper and natural ways of that environment, that sociology, and they think that she's very, very odd, and they, uh, some of them come to even despise her and reject her, and she's written off, really written off by almost everybody in the town, like one of those sinners that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law uh, had no time for and only gossiped about. She is a lost sheep, Kaya. She is a lost coin. She is a lost child. Near the climax of the story, Kaya is put on trial for her life. And the, and the townspeople are gathering around, and the jurors, uh, almost everybody is united in thinking, finally, this weird thing is going to be uh, getting what she deserves. She's going to be disposed of until a venerable old lawyer rises up in his closing argument and pleads her case. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, says the attorney, I grew up in Barclay Cove, and when I was a younger man, I heard all the tall tales about the Marsh Girl. Many call her that, he says. Some people whispered that she was part wolf, that she was the missing link between ape and man, that her eyes glowed in the dark. Yet in reality, she was an abandoned child. She was a little girl surviving on her own in a swamp. She was hungry and cold. But we did not help her. Not one of our churches, not one of our community groups, offered her food or clothes. Instead, we labeled and rejected her because we thought she was different. But ladies and gentlemen, did we exclude Miss Clark because she was different? Or was she different? Did she remain different because we excluded her? I don't want to tell you all that happened because I want you to read the book. But I will say that toward the end, many within that community make the shift in their attitude towards this life. And Kaya goes on to become a renowned and well-published naturalist, a celebrated artist, and to many people now, the pride of Barclay Cove. 
She still bears many, many scars from her history, as many of us listening today, as I personally still do from my history. But she now finds more love and hope and redemption than she had even dared to dream. I wonder sometimes how many more Dan Myers or Kaya Clarks or you, yous are out there. I wonder how many others are out there, sinners, strangers, people who are odd in one way or another, lost in one way or another. I wonder how many are out there who basically need someone to search for them, to find them, to embrace them and take them in. I wonder how many need a place in God's family. What would it mean to them? What would we experience in the way of blessing ourselves were you and I to reach out and to embrace them even more assertively and purposely and and aggressively even than we do? What if all of us, what if every single one of us actually made the decision to pray fervently from this day forward that we would shift from securing ourselves to seeking others, to seeking the good of others, what would happen as a result of that? What might get better? What might become different? Here's a little quiz, I think, that helps us assess whether we've already made the shift. When you walk into the church building, when you go into your school, when you enter your workplace or a shopping mall, is your main thought, the dominating thought, I wonder what I'll get here. I wonder what I'll get here. Or have you made the shift to thinking every bit as much, I I wonder what I might be able to give here. I wonder who I'll run into. I wonder who I can welcome or guide or help or encourage here. What would it be like if every time you entered this building, your thought wasn't, ooh, where are my friends? But your thought was, where is the person I don't know? Where is the story I haven't heard? Who is it that I can reach out to and befriend? Or when you leave this building on the weekend, are you thinking, well, I'm really glad I got my fill-up. I'm glad I got my tune-up for the week. Or is your thought a little bit more of, well, how can I use what I heard, what I learned, what I experienced in that that community of faith to now go out and find people who are not part of the community of faith and share love and grace and wisdom and hope and help with them? Whose life? Can I impact for the good? Who will be in the community of faith next week or next year because of me? Because I found them and I brought them home. Or when God blesses you with a promotion or maybe some kind of financial windfall or greater prominence in some sphere of influence, do you think to yourself, wow, this is really great for me, for my family? Or instead, do you think, wow, thank you, Lord. Now you've given me the capacity to touch and bless even more people in your name. Which of those orientations are you closer to? If you want to groove the shift I'm talking about even more fully in this week ahead, here's just one concrete idea, one next step, one takeaway. Identify somebody in your path, 
It might be out here in the building today. It may be out where you go this afternoon or in the week ahead, but identify at least one person who bears some resemblance to that lost sheep, that lost coin, that lost kid that we meet in the parables, and we meet two lost kids in the parables. Maybe it's, it's somebody who is of a different race or a different generation or a different political persuasion. It could be a a complete stranger. It could be a person that you see all the time at a restaurant or at some other service location you go to. It could be a checkout person. It could be a server. It could be a person who speaks with an entirely different kind of accent. The point is, see somebody. Find somebody who might have previously been regarded by you or others as a mere marsh girl, as a mere sinner or stranger, and do something to build a redemptive relationship with them. Welcome and eat with them. And if you can't arrange a meal, then at least stop and listen to and learn from them and learn about them and pray for them and express some form of practical compassion toward them. The Bible makes it clear that this is exactly the thing that Jesus did. Read through the Gospels again and just count how many times he spots somebody in a tree, by a well, by the roadside, and leaves the 99 to go out and search for them, to bring them home. Why is it not the case that the people who are known as Christians are not also known widely and belovedly as the very ones who keep on doing this? If we are disciples, not dabblers, and having seen how Jesus moves beyond securing self to seeking others, it's going to be a lot easier for you and me to make that shift. Would you please pray with me? Gracious Lord God, we dare to believe that like those people in Barclay Cove, one day we are going to wake up and see more fully what we didn't see. We're going to feel what a shame it was that we spent so much time thinking about ourselves, securing ourselves, and relatively little time reaching out in love to the people around us people who hunger for security and belonging and love just as we do. By the light of your shining glory, Lord, we're going to realize how many of these people could have been our beloved family members all along had we dared to open our hearts, had we dared to extend our hand to them. Knowing that, having caught a glimpse of that today, Lord, help us to make that shift now. In the name of Jesus, our shepherd and king. Amen.